1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Lee Brack, and here's the thing. What I love about this show is not only all of the wonderful guests that we have on the program, celebrities, authors, thought leaders, singers, and mindfulness experts, but sometimes we meet some of these wonderful people right in our own midst on our Finding Your Bliss team. And a couple of years ago, we started working with a video editor named Sierra Brown Rodriguez. And even though a lot of my interactions with her have been virtual, we have developed a very nice rapport even (laughs) over the computer and through our texts. And what's been so cool about her is that at first I thought she was just a social media and digital marketer. And then I discovered that she has a very successful TikTok following. And then about six months after that, I found out that she's written a beautiful book of poetry called Growing Pains. And I finally said, Sierra, we have to have you on the show because I really think that Sierra is a great example of someone who just knows how to make it happen. And these are the kinds of people that I love to show to you because she might have some clues on how you can make it happen for yourself as well. And that's what a lot of coaching is really all about is just giving people permission to go for it, to take a chance and make their dreams come true. So before we meet her, let me tell you a little bit more about Sierra. Sierra Brown Rodriguez is a published author. She's a trendologist And don't worry, we'll find out what that means. She's an independent digital marketer and founder of See You Next Tuesday Media. As Sierra describes it, she's an avid internet abuser and a storyteller at heart. As mentioned, one of the people that she's helped for the last couple of years is all of us here at Finding Your Bliss. And while I mostly speak to her, as I mentioned, via text and occasionally in person, it's so wonderful to see her online and in person today. Sierra Brown Rodriguez, welcome to this side of the camera to Finding Your Bliss.
2: Thank you for having me, Judy. I'm super excited to be here.
1: (laughs) So happy to see you. In putting this interview together, Sierra, I learned so much about you. First of all, congratulations on your beautiful book of poetry, Growing Pains, which really blew me away. It wasn't what I expected. And I was so impressed, really, By the level of depth and wisdom in this beautiful book of poetry and prose. You say that Growing Pains explores the space between being a young girl and growing into a woman. On the back of your book, it says, Sierra's poems are dark and sweet, dripping in sorrow and self-pity. Best read while sipping an extra dirty martini in a dimly lit hotel bar. love that. (laughs) Sierra dances with the ghosts of her past, dressing them up in frilly gowns and serving her bloody heart on a silver platter. Wow. Can we ever all relate to that? Can you tell me more about your brainchild for this gorgeous book of poetry called Growing Pains?
2: Yeah, of course. So, honestly, the entirety of the poems were written between the years of, I think, 19 to 23. And when I was writing a lot of them, it wasn't with the intention to publish them into a book. It was a lot of just almost like a form of therapy to sort of write down a lot of these thoughts. And they were through, you know, some of my first serious relationships. They were through uh my university career, it was through a very like turbulent time in my life. I think for a lot of young people, especially women, 19 to 23 tends to be a very difficult sort of transformative time. And that's something that I've spoken to with like a lot of my good friends as well. So it kind of didn't start with the intention of being a book. And then when I graduated university, I realized I had sort of all of these poems and all these Thoughts that I had kind of just been writing. And my friends were like, this could be a book. And I was like, <laughs> it could. <laughs> but you know, as I was reading back, I was like, this is very vulnerable. And it took me probably a good six to eight months to actually build up the courage to publish it, because it was sort of like, handing over the terminology I use when I say kind of giving my heart on a silver platter is that when I published it, it really felt like I was like, here is the most vulnerable parts of myself. Like, please treat it with kindness. But it was a very transformative thing for me to do. I think when I published it, it felt like I was able to sort of close that chapter of my life and move on and move forward. And it was at the end of the day, I think it was like my way of saying, this is my story of where I'm at now sort of from being a young girl and turning into a woman. And I kind of used it to be able to say my story and claim my story and be like, okay, I'm not happy with everything I guess I've done up into this point. There's things I wish I could change, but this is who I am. And by publishing it, I was like, okay, I feel like that's it. Now I can go off and be a different person and sort of find the things that make me happy and really sort of take on that role of womanhood. That's so cool. So, That's think, so cool. Yeah, <laughs> I have
1: visions of you writing these poems on the subway, <laughs> on a couch. and like, Where where did you write most of them? Was this like the notebook by the bed, middle of the night, wake up, gotta get this off my chest right now. Did you talk them into a phone? Did you write them down longhand? How did it look? Um,
2: like a, a mixture of the two for sure. A lot of it was on like my notes app when I was like sitting on the subway crying or like walking home from like an exam jotting something down in my phone. I also have a ton of notebooks just laying around everywhere. So some of it is on there it was also a process like putting them all together because there's some on my phone there's some on the notebook there's some just like scribbled on random pieces of paper that's flying around my room so it was uh a lot of different mediums that I was using I guess that's so cool yeah I really sort of imagined
1: that like the scraps of paper then trying to decipher what did I write again I did it with so much passion it's crazy you can see
2: I even have ones like up on my wall that I just scribble down and I put up there and I'm like okay like I'll Do something with that eventually. (laughs) That'll be volume two. I want to
1: ask you, did you study poetry at all in university or did you take courses in fiction writing, short prose and poetry? Or did this all sort of come naturally to you?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I've been writing, I think, since I was a kid. I actually started university as an economics major. Wow! Um, Wow. (laughs) I (laughs) bounced around quite a bit. I was a drama major for a semester and I ended up graduating with a double major in cinema studies and book and media studies. Mm -hmm. And I did a, a minor in creative expression. So the minor had a few courses of I took like a novel writing course and like a journalism course, but it wasn't really something I formally studied. It was a lot of just independent writing and sharing. I shared it a lot on my Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and stuff like that. And it was actually kind of through like the social media sharing that I was like, oh, you know, maybe I am kind of good at this because my friends and sort of even people that were friends of friends would message me or come up to me and say like, you know, that really resonated with me. I totally understand how you're feeling. And the first couple of times that happened, I was like so happy, obviously, that it made me feel like, okay, I'm not the only one that is feeling what I'm writing down.
1: (laughs) I want to share a little bit with our listeners right away about what you do, because I love your poem, You'll Always Have a Seat at My Dinner Table. And I'm going to Mm -hmm. ask you if you would like to read it or if you want me to read it for our listeners.
2: Yeah, I can read it. I have um, a copy of my book. That'd be great. Bitter sweetness tanks my tongue like iron blood pouring into my mouth after accidentally biting my lip. I know you must go, like how I know winter must come if I ever want another summer, but I can't help the sorrow that wiggles its way around my lungs. A forest of potential budded inside my cavities and was just as quickly wiped out by wildflowers of deception. Watching you walk away feels a lot like leaving for college. My mother was happy I left, but I know she keeps the door creaked ever so slightly so I can always find my way home, even if the streetlights are burnt out. I'll do the same for you. My door will always be left a sliver open in case you ever want to stop by for coffee. I know I'm not home, you told me so, but my dinner table has a placemat for you and I still have your favorite mug. I glued it back together.
1: Oh. <laughs> okay, so that poem. The part about the mom I'm really relating to That's <laughs> the mom in real life of a girl your age. Tell me more about the inspiration of that poem. And does it still get you? Because this is maybe the third time I've heard it now. And I it just really has a very powerful effect.
2: Yeah. So when I first wrote it, it was based on sort of like a singular experience with a person one of my first romantic experiences of feeling deceived or feeling disillusioned, but still very confused why I had these, you know, fond memories or these fond feelings for this person. And through the process of like rewriting and and editing, which I realized that it took on a different life in terms of the feelings I had towards a lot of people that had left my life, whether that was friends who I'd grown apart from or lovers that had come and gone, sort of all these people I felt like were no longer a part of my life, but I still felt like they had a place in my heart or in my life and they will always have a place. And I think that that was a difficult feeling for me to grasp, especially when it is, you know, maybe a lover or an ex or something like that. But as I've gotten older and reflected on it, I really feel like it talks more about the person that I was when I was with them is still alive. So they will always have they will always have a place at my dinner table, wow. essentially. That's um, and that
1: just, Do you still feel emotional now as you're sitting here when you hear yourself read that?
2: Yeah. It's a different type of emotional though. Cause it's, I think when I was writing a lot of these and I was editing all of them two years ago, it felt like I was living through it and I'm able to look back now and, and look at it through the lens of who I am and how I've grown. And so it's a different type of emotional. It's I'm proud, I guess, is, is the way to, to look at it because I remember the pain that I was feeling when I was writing a lot of these, so. Right,
1: and it's from a new vantage point because you have yeah. grown up and you are a young woman now and it's not that sort of same searing pain that you had yeah. when, when it happened. And I guess my other question is, do you feel a sense of catharsis when you finish a poem or not necessarily? Like, what do you like <laughs> when you write something like this? Do you go, whew, got that off my chest? That was sort of therapeutic just to release that.
2: Yeah, 100%. No matter uh, what state of mind I'm in, usually when I get something on paper, I feel better. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it goes through variations. Like I'll write sort of the same idea or the same general theme in a few different ways. And it does feel like therapy. Sometimes it feels like exposure therapy, (laughs) sort of like reliving it. And so it can be a little bit, a lot. It can be a a bit of a journey, but it's definitely therapeutic. And it's been the way that I feel like I'm able to express myself and relate to others and connect with others. And I think that it's always been sort of the tool I use to express myself and to be able to form connections. That's with awesome. People. So awesome. What, what a powerful
1: tool that you mm-hmm. have in your tool belt, as it were, to use. Cheaper than therapy, <laughs> um, kind yes. of like being your own portable coach, but in a creative way, because, you yeah. know, they're saying it, you know, just sort of plainly, there's something about saying it with fabulous, creative, metaphorical words. And, <laughs> and even your titles of your poems are fabulous, but your titles are also wonderful. And one of which is a poem you wrote called Forbidden Fruits, and it left me reeling. I encourage you all to pick up a copy of Sierra's book, Growing Pains, to read the poem Forbidden Fruit. And even another poem you wrote, Peace is for Ignorant, is such a universal poem. It just reminded me of so many moments in love feeling exactly that way. Can you tell us without reading it, because I want people to read this one, what you were feeling when you wrote that poem, Peace is for Ignorant?
2: Yeah, that I think was a big learning lesson in my life. I tended to try to find relationships when I was younger as a means to fill a hole in myself. (laughs) And I would get to these points in these relationships with, you know, a lot of them were very, were very good people that it just didn't work out with. But I would get to these points in relationships and I would sort of think like, why am I not feeling what I'm supposed to be feeling? Like what everyone is saying I'm supposed to feel. And it always sort of felt like I was kind of like one foot in one foot out, but Mm. it took a long time for me to realize that it had more to do with myself and my ability to connect with people and my ability to love and less to do with the relationship itself. And so I remember feeling like something was wrong <laughs> with me in these relationships. Cause I was like, I just don't feel like I'm getting there. I don't feel like I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And Coming to terms with that, and it took years, obviously. Um, <laughs> but I was able to sort of look back and realize that the love that I was looking for in other people for a very long time was to fill the void that I had in my own heart of the love that I was lacking for myself. Looking back now, I was never able to feel completely sort of like joyful or fulfilled in these relationships because I wasn't feeling <laughs> joyful or fulfilled with myself in my own life it's so cliche to say the whole you have to love yourself first type of thing. And I don't necessarily agree that you need to have all of the tools prepared and you have to be so full of self-love to get into a relationship. But I think you need to have the foundation of knowing and trusting yourself and loving yourself enough to, you know, have the hard conversations and do the tough things that are going to protect you and your heart. Yes. And that was a big learning lesson. Incredible. <laughs> but,
1: Incredible. It, well, it's just such a mature awakening because some people realize mm-hmm. that at forty and fifty and sixty and not in their 20s. so you're ahead of the game I'll just I'll just reassure <laughs> you about that. A lot of these poems are so relatable as well. That's another thing and I want to say this to our listeners who are all ages, but really from twenty on from twenty to hundred and twenty, I think that you can relate to these poems like the problem with us. The first two lines are the problem with us is that you wanted me to be different, someone holy and foreign. That is such a typical thing, right? In a relationship. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, I think it was sort of a double-edged sword. I think when I was entering relationships, I was looking for love. And I think that in my pursuit of trying to impress people when I was younger, I would be someone I I wasn't. And so a constant theme I feel like I was running into was that these people would maybe fall in love with a version of me that they had made up in their brain. And then, yes. you know, eventually when you're when you get to any point in a relationship, right, you have to show them your The whole thing. Right. Yeah. The full Monty. <laughs> and yeah, and it, I take complete responsibility for my active role in the way that I showed up in those relationships. But I think it especially as women, there's, you know, that fear to show what people refer to as your crazy self or your real self and whatnot. And I think now I've gotten to the point of being so confident in myself and being so open with myself about the good things and the bad things that I don't want to be anyone different. And I think I was trying to fit into molds of what people expected of me, especially in romantic relationships. And that was not entirely their fault. It wasn't entirely my fault, but it always did feel like I was expected to be someone that I wasn't. And I I think I didn't really want to be myself at that time. So I was happy to sort of fall into that. But looking back on it now, I I realized that it was something I was kind of doing to myself.
1: No, it's, inc- it's just incredible because I think so many people can relate because we all do this, right? Like I, yeah. I remember my 20 year old self saying, oh, I'm very independent. I don't need anyone when in fact that wasn't true at all. Yeah. But you say that because you know, that's cool and they're going to like that. And But that's mm-hmm. not really showing up as you, which is what you need to be in, in a great relationship.
2: Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard to show up as yourself. You yeah. really have to know yourself and be confident Absolutely. in yourself. That's Absolutely. not easy. Well, you're sure. very confident
1: for, on, honestly, some of you writing, <laughs> I can't believe it. I cried when I read Damned from the start because it reminded me of my parents' divorce when I was three years old. Can you tell us what your inspiration was for writing that poem?
2: Yeah. So it was also about uh, my parents' divorce. My parents got divorced, I think, when I was around seven or eight. Um, so, you know, I, I was sort of an active participant in it. And I think it sort of, at least for the early parts of my youth and my dating experience in my pursuit of love sort of was the framework of what I was operating in. And it was probably the best decision my parents made divorcing. It wasn't, they weren't compatible. Like it didn't make sense for them to stay together. But, you know, as a young kid taking all of that in, that was sort of my approach to love. I, I was very cynical. I was very, it's not going to last anyways. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have a family, yada, yada, yada. It took me a long time to realize that It was just my parents weren't compatible (laughs) and it had nothing to do with the commitment of love or, you know, my own of love. So I think that honestly, writing that poem and being able to reflect back on that, I was able to look at it and be like, okay, so this is what you're carrying to each relationship. If you're going to walk in with this cynical view, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get what you want. And I think that I kind of wanted a fight. Like I wanted a war in, in my relationships. And I wasn't even aware of that until probably only like a year and a half ago,
1: (laughs) but to work it out. You wanted to follow that same thing. Well, this is how, this is how you operate in a relationship. So let's do that. And then you'll feel Mm -hmm. more alive and you'll feel more in it.
2: Yeah. It was like a chaos cycle. And I think I was so used to that, that when I Got into a healthy relationship. I was like, whoa, this is not what I'm used to. Where is the chaos? Like, where is the up and down? Like, where is the roller coaster? And it was very steady and it was very stable. And it was just completely different than what I had ever experienced. And somehow that was more triggering than any of my (laughs) maybe more toxic relationships because you have to show up and it pushes you to be the best version of yourself. And that was so hard. Of course, it's (laughs) easier just to,
0: just to
1: let it all hang out, right. Than to to be at your absolute best. Of course, some of your poems are short and sweet. Sometimes they're only a few words. Others are longer prose, like a poem, about love, which is magnificent. And I'm also going to leave that one for the reader to search up when they get your book, Growing Pains. And another poem that moved me to the core was your poem, The Moment. And I'd love it if you could read it. Before we hear Sierra read her beautiful poem, The Moment, we're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss when we come back.
0: Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together.
1: We are back, and this is Find Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, and I'm here with Sierra Brown Rodriguez, who is about to read us her poem, the moment
2: yes last night sitting with a glass of rosé on the porch of my college house as fog rolled through the street and fireworks crackled like gunshots all around me I finally knew what they meant when they said falling in love with yourself was the best part tear jerker tear <laughs> jerker I still actually do remember that moment <laughs> surprisingly that I'm referring to
1: so that line that last line falling in love with yourself was the best part. Some people never yeah. get there. So that's amazing that, that you got it. And it is yeah. quite a beautiful feeling.
2: I do honestly remember that moment and that feeling. And it reminds me of the first time that I felt like I was in love with someone else. And it, you know, just sort of creeps up on you and in the randomest moments. Yes. But I think that was like the first inclination of that feeling that I honestly ever felt. And that was, I think at 23, 22, 23. And it is the best part.
1: (laughs) I I know that feeling. And I, I was around your age, finishing university, actually, when I had a similar thing. You write on the back of the book that Sierra hopes that those whose bones ache at the end of getting older find comfort in her words. What did you mean by this?
2: I think there's like an inherent ache and discomfort of growing up. I think it's a lot easier to sort of continue in the patterns that you've been doing for the majority of your life. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest part of growing up is sort of shedding that skin of who you were. And it's a very uncomfortable process. And this book sort of was meant almost as a testimony to what you're feeling is very real. Like you're not alone in that that discomfort and that painful journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been there, I've been through it. And so I think what I meant is mostly just It's going to hurt before it gets better. Mm -hmm. The growing pains are going to, you're going to feel them, Mm -hmm. but they fade eventually, no matter what, as long as you keep showing up for yourself Mm -hmm. and you just push through
1: it. You have a company called See You Next Tuesday Media. Great title. You also have (laughs) a huge following on TikTok. And I asked a friend of mine who's closer to your age, what do you think is the secret behind Sierra's huge following? And she said to me, well, she's gorgeous trendy she gets it and she's sharing it with all of us and you really are such a natural now i kind of understand the drama background there's a little bit of a performer in there but how did that get started for you and what is your jam on tiktok
2: yeah so i i started posting on tiktok i think during covid and it was really just something to pass the time it was not something that i sort of started with the idea of growing it but I started sharing, you know, more of my poetry and more of just my sort of raw thoughts. And it took, you know, a little while to sort of find my niche. I think I post like fashion videos and I'd post like random things with like going out with my friends and stuff like that. And uh, it took a while for me to transition into what I think is more of like my authentic self and what I'm authentically sharing. And so I eventually kind of landed on, you know, I use it now to post about, Uh, My poetry and to post about sort of more film, more book uh, related content. And so I think now my jam or what I focus on is just authenticity and what interests me because I feel like if it interests me, it probably interests someone else.
1: (laughs) That's so great. It's so interesting that you say that because you're so right. When someone's authentic, you just know it. Whether they're 90 or 20 or whatever age they are, you just notice that that they're sharing who they really are, kind of like in a relationship, kind of like your book. It works in every part of your life. You yeah. also call yourself a trendologist. I think we sort of may know what that means, but in your words, how would you describe a trendologist?
2: I'm, I am so surprised you found that because I think I've honestly only referred to myself like once by that. <laughs> But I've been on the internet a very long time. I started like on Tumblr when I was like 10, 11, 12. So I've been on the internet for a very long time. And The internet has patterns that I've picked up on. So when I say trendologist, I basically just mean I feel like I know what is going to stick around and go viral and what people are going to talk about for the foreseeable future on the internet, mostly like trend cycles on the internet. And a lot of times those sort of get, regurgitated every couple of years and it's actually interesting because trend cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter now with how fast-paced the internet is and how fast-paced honestly the digital world is becoming (laughs) so it's it's interesting to watch it in real time
1: what are some trends for 2024 that you see like are there any sort of obvious trends that you can just say that you notice off the top
2: the big one is that idea of authenticity that you were talking about and that we've been touching on um People really want sort of raw, unfiltered authenticity, emotions, thoughts, feelings. I actually just did a video on how blogging is making a comeback. And that ties right into authenticity, sort of like the good old blogging days Ah. when it was almost like a digital journal that you were kind of just posting your thoughts and feelings. And I think a lot of people are shying away now from sort of that overproduced content Mm -hmm. and leaning more into that authentic what people are sharing just off the top of their head. That type of content seems to be the front runner right now. And I think that's why blogging is making such a big comeback in general. People just want to feel connected to other people. And the way you feel connected is through authenticity and through feeling like you know someone beyond just sort of an overly produced TikTok (laughs)
1: It's so true. You know, I, and I'm digressing and I know we're running to the end of our time, but I just have to share this, that when I first went on camera, I thought, well, I should just copy Ona Fletcher, who was a CBC anchor woman that I worked with at CBC. And she was amazing. And and she used to literally have a certain intonation in her voice. And she would basically say, you know, good evening, everyone. My name is Ona Fletcher and this is the six o'clock evening news. And so when I first got onto my show in the spotlight, which was a show all about the arts and theater and film and all the stuff, I would say, good evening, everyone. <laughs> My name is Judy. And, and this is in the spotlight. And, and it was like, they were like, wait a minute, you don't <laughs> talk like that.
2: <laughs> and finally, I realized I just had to say, I'm Judy. And, you know, and be, yeah. and be me. It's hard. It's hard to find. Again, it ties into the whole finding yourself. You can't show up authentically as who you are until you know who you are.
1: <laughs> what do you think is the secret to going viral?
2: Oh, if I had the secret, (laughs) I would uh, be going viral a lot more often. I honestly, I think I've only had a few viral videos, but I think at the end of the day, the secret is just talking about what you know and being passionate about it Mm -hmm. uh, because that comes through on a phone screen, right? And it's, you can't fake it. So it's finding your niche and really hunkering down on that niche, but being really passionate about it because people pick up on that. So I'm just going to say
1: there's something a little bit mysterious about you.
2: (laughs) I I don't know. And I've always felt that. Is there
1: something surprising about you that we may not know that you'd like to share with us?
2: Oh, my goodness. I have a lot of like random hobbies. My friends, (laughs) my friends sort of call me the I always just have a hobby going on. You can literally see like the chessboard I have behind me. Uh, (laughs) I recently just got back into playing the saxophone. Yeah, I have a ton of just like really (laughs) things that I do that surprise people, I guess, when they tell them. But my friends are so used to it now, like... I'm very much the type of person that I'll send them a random text being like, I think I'm going to get into this. And then like the next day I send them like for the saxophone, I texted them like, (laughs) I think I'm going to get back into the saxophone. And then the next day I sent them a video of me playing it. And they're like, (laughs) what? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, I don't think you've touched that thing in like 10 years. I was like, yeah, I just... I kind of want to get back into it. That's
1: crazy. That's so cool. So there's a question that we ask everyone at the end of the show. And of course, we're going to ask you, and you know this because you (laughs) edit a lot of these videos. What is bliss for Sierra Brown Rodriguez?
2: (laughs) Bliss is being myself in whatever way that means, and also allowing myself to change the definition of what that means and letting go of the idea of what once gave me bliss has to give me bliss through my entire life. I think to love yourself and to love other people, I'm paraphrasing a quote from someone else, but to love someone and to love yourself is to attend a thousand funerals of the person you are and the person you will be. And for me, bliss is following whoever it is that I am in that moment and approaching that unapologetically and understanding that it will change throughout my life. And I will be a very different person five years from now than I am today but it's finding what I'm passionate about in these moments and holding on to it and letting it grow and letting certain things die because a death is always a rebirth right so I think it just means to be who I am no matter what well I have to
1: say this also is not what I expected and it's really been (laughs) delightful I don't know if it has been for you but it's really I've been looking forward to this (laughs) I'm so happy we finally did this what is the best way, Sierra? First of all, I'm going to say for people to follow you on TikTok, on the rest mm-hmm. of social media, and of course, to get a copy of your book, Growing Pains.
2: Yeah. So on TikTok, you can just find me, sierramadison.jpeg, so J-P-E-G. And then on Instagram, it's sierramadison.jpeg, but just get rid of the E in there. <laughs> um and then you can buy my book, Growing Pains, on Amazon at Chapters. If you just Google Growing Pains by Sierra Madison, it should just pop up wherever the like, local bookstore or whatever is nearest to you
1: has. Awesome. Well, I encourage you all to get it. It's been an absolute delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here, Sierra. It's great. Thank
2: you so much for having me. It's awesome.
1: We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss and singer and mental health advocate, Katherine Harrison, when we come back. This segment is brought to you by SilveringBeauty.com. If you have ditched the dye and love the feeling and freedom of letting your silver hair grow free, you'll love exploring a new approach from beauty entrepreneur, Alexis Asianus. Her Silvering Beauty products are designed to boost the beauty of all shades of naturally graying hair. My silver haired friends are very excited about the amazing difference Silvering Beauty has made for their appearance with products for tone, shine, volume, and even brows. If you want to look as great as Silvering feels, visit silveringbeauty.com today. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And we're now joined by mental health advocate and singer-songwriter, Catherine Harrison. Let me tell you a little bit about her before we meet her. Catherine Harrison is a Canadian musician, mental health strategy consultant, human-centered leadership expert, author, certified executive coach, an advocate for inclusive and equitable well-being. As the founder and president of Revelios, she aims to improve our collective mental health literacy and social fitness through education, reducing stigma, and facilitating open and courageous conversations. We need those over the past several years, Catherine has been active in illuminating the unique mental health challenges that musicians and crew experience and is currently a trusted advisor to several national and international nonprofit music organizations. Catherine Harrison, welcome to Finding Your Bliss.
3: Thank you, Judy. It's so nice to see you today. So great to
1: have you here. We've just finished celebrating Valentine's Day a day all about love, and it can be easy to forget about the many different types of love in our lives that can be celebrated and the importance of celebrating and prioritizing self-love as well. You released a song for Valentine's Day, congratulations, called Love is Not a Game, which we'll be playing later to tackle this very topic. Can you tell us more about your brainchild, Love is Not a Game?
3: Yeah, so I wrote this song several years ago, and it was It started really as a classic autobiographical musing on the unraveling of a relationship. It just happened to be a standard romantic relationship. But as I was completing the song, because sometimes songs come out all in one go, and sometimes you start and a little bit comes out and you revisit it in a couple more weeks or a couple more months, and it iterates. And, you know, it's like polishing a stone, as it continued to, I guess, present itself to me. And then as I started to play it more, it shifted and the lyrics became more representative of not just a romantic love and all that that might include positives, negatives, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it shifted into commentary on love in general and how we need to take it more seriously. And I don't mean it in like a grave way, but that, One of, I think, the universal issues that we have in our current society is a real lack of profound and fundamental love. That is compassion and connection and communion. That is community, communicating, the love of self, the compassion for self, the love of our fellow man, of our environment, of our creatures, of our passions and artistic pursuits. Mm and why it's entitled Love is Not a Game is to kind of encourage people to take back their love, which is such a powerful thing and say, you know, I, I, I'm i going to energize this love that I put out into the world. And it's less about a simple romantic love where it can be a real like, screw you song, you know, <laughs> right. but, but that's also too superficial. Okay. and And that's when I really started thinking about the work that I do in mental health advocacy, and the narrow definition that we have of mental health Mm -hmm. and the parallel of love and the narrow definition we have of love and all of a sudden these two things really just started coming together that part of the mental health issue is disconnection we don't have community we are disconnected from our sense of self and Mm -hmm. each other and there's a real emphasis placed on superficiality and not just reconnecting to our humanity and so there just seem to be so many parallels judy um, yes. but all of a sudden it, it just became clear to me, which is kind of cool with art. You know, sometimes you start in, on, on one thing and as I said, it, yes. it morphs and, and iterates into something yes. way it's cooler. so amazing.
1: It's so true. Like sometimes other people discover something in your art, but how great that even you saw something in the very art that you created that took on a whole new meaning. And it almost sounds like it started to take on a life of its own, which shows you that it's an incredible song. I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. We're going to keep them waiting a tiny bit longer because I want to ask you a couple of other things, but I'm so excited to share it with everyone. There's also a charity element to all of this. So all proceeds from your song, and I congratulate you on that as well, will go to the Unison Fund. Can you tell us more about this charity and what you love about it?
3: Yeah, so the Unison Fund is a nonprofit organization that serves to support individuals in the Canadian music industry financially and from a mental health perspective. Um, And it has been around for several years. And like most nonprofits these days, Continue to constantly be challenged with having enough funds to meet their goals and their mandates. So this is a this is an organization that I volunteer at. I volunteer on the board. I've also worked with them on doing some mental health first aid training with some of their wow. uh, folks there, so that they themselves can improve their own um, sense of mental health literacy and become ambassadors for mental health. And I know people in the in the music community who have benefited from the organization being there for them in times of stress and pressure. And, um, and so COVID, it's really and COVID important- too.
1: I know a few as well.
3: Yes. Yes, yes. absolutely. And absolutely. COVID was really sort of challenges on steroids, right? Um, the entire <laughs> industry was shut down. So I just thought that one way I could give back is to ensure that whatever financial energy was put towards this song that it would benefit an organization near and dear to my heart and ultimately people from my own music community.
1: That's incredible. We have a huge problem around mental health. And I'm sadly hearing story after story of some major missing Mm -hmm. gaps in our system. And really with a lot of young people, some tragedies, I don't know what else to say, where I just think, my goodness, we've come so far with so many illnesses. And here we are in 2024, and we have so much work to do in the areas of mental health. What are some of the things that we can do to help people who are not able to reach out for help, or don't know how to reach out for help, or don't have the confidence to, even if they do know, there's something that's happening in our mental health system where I think there's individuals that are falling and slipping through the cracks. Yeah. What do we say to these people and to the loved ones of these people to make sure that we can prevent the cold rather than cure it when it's yeah. too late?
3: Well, and first off, I want to say that it is a deeply complex issue, like healthcare care in general and mental health care in particular. It is very complex. So what I say is not just a simple panacea like, oh, great, just do the following things and mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. will be fine. Yes. Yes. One of the things that you brought up, though, I think is one of the critical issues that we're certainly looking to remediate, which is we think of mental health in very binary terms. That is, you're either perfectly fine or you're mentally ill. You have a diagnosis and you're broken and you need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the first things that we need to do is we need to shift that narrative and recognize that we all reside somewhere on a mental health continuum. Yes. At any given point in our lives, at any given point in our various journeys, we all go through ups and downs in our lives. Sometimes yes. we do, in fact, present with and get diagnosed with a mental health disorder and illness. But in many cases, we don't. And so what one of the things we can do is to recognize that Yes, we need more beds. And yes, we need more counselors and psychotherapists and psychologists. Yes. And yes, we need pharmacology to be there in certain cases. And we also need to prevent and promote healthy, optimal mental health before we need mm-hmm. all of those things. Of course. And one of the best ways we can do that, Judy, is to begin improving our own sense of mental health literacy. That is knowing what is it and how do I talk to uh, someone that i love or work with or care about about signs and symptoms of a deteriorating mental health state or a physical health state or a social health state because mental physical and social are all interconnected mm-hmm. and we might notice someone becoming more withdrawn or someone becoming more you know engaged in substance use or in behavior that is not the norm for them mm-hmm. But in most cases, we don't do anything because we don't want to make it worse. And so we don't. And part of Mm -hmm. literacy is learning, how do I have that conversation? When do I have that conversation? And actually knowing what tools are available so that we ourselves can use them, that Mm -hmm. we can access them, and that we can share them with others so that that we can actually work in the sort of green, yellow, and orange zone and not just focus on the red zone, which is mental illness. Right. 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 right.
1: Really, really well put. So I guess my question is, what are some of the lines in the lingo and where can we learn those lines and lingo to have that literacy as, as you describe it yeah. to get in there before it's too
3: late? That's right. Taking mental health first aid, which is very similar to physical first aid. Right, Everyone knows about Red Cross and St. John's Ambulance. You take your first aid course when you're younger. Somebody has a broken arm or a bleed or they're, you know, presenting with potentially a heart attack or something. Mental health first aid is a course that you can take and you can you can access it through our website as well. That actually gives you the language and the knowledge and the tools to provide first aid for someone that is in a mental health disruption or crisis. So that's one way. Um, What's are, the
1: website? Just I, just in case people aren't here at the end, I want, I want them to hear it now. What is sure. the website?
3: They can go right to revelios.com. There's amazing. lots of information there. Wow. And there's also, and right on the banner of the website, there's a great government here in Canada sponsored a program called wellnesstogether.ca. And you can find... Tons of beautifully curated and vetted resources to learn about mental health, to learn about resources to help support yourself and your loved ones and your community members for mental health. There's a new crisis line, 988, which is a suicide prevention line, or if someone's in mental health crisis for suicide, as opposed to 911 and being triaged over.
1: This is incredible stuff. And I'm so grateful that you shared this with our audience. But here's the thing what about the stigma? Because I think that people don't feel ready to call a crisis line or to help someone who they feel may be in crisis because of the stigma that still exists. How do we change that? How do we change that narrative so that people feel more relaxed, that they can talk about it the way they would talk about diabetes or they, they would talk about anything?
3: That's the long game. You know what, Judy? And that's going to take years because it's culturally embedded that mental health is something we don't want to talk about, mm-hmm. that mental health is kind of icky, and that mental health it has to do with a character flaw, that it doesn't have to do with the way our society or culture perhaps contributes to that sense of disconnection. Mm-hmm. So the number one thing we can do is do what we're doing right now, which is to talk about it, to ask mm-hmm. questions about it, to share these kinds of conversations for people who are in the public eye like yourself or musicians or other people to wherever and however possible. And it's difficult because of stigma to share their own stories because it is in sharing those stories, people recognize that they're not alone. That is the number one thing that we can do is to recognize that we're all in it. We all reside on that continuum, but that's a cultural shift that's going to take a longer time than just a checkbox, right? Absolutely.
1: Can you just tell us briefly about Revelios?
3: Well, you know, post-COVID when the veil was really lifted off the mental health crisis, I decided to really shift towards mental health. I went back to school, I got my masters in psychology so that I could have the knowledge and the skills with which to contribute in as meaningful a way possible. And that led to creating this organization called Revelios. And our mission really is to change the conversation around mental health, to improve mental health literacy, to reduce stigma, to cultivate senses of agency and empowerment and self-efficacy within our communities. Because we can't just rely on institutional and infrastructural change. That's going to take time. But in the meantime, we can find and cultivate community and change those conversations. And I think that there's a lot of power, and that's a very deep part of the mission of why we exist and and what what we do.
1: How has your relationship with music and creativity benefited your mental health?
3: Well, you know, for me, artistic expression and songwriting and performing and being in a studio with people I love, you know, and having fun, it is a place of joy. And also as a consumer of music, you know, music is one thing that I, I go to when I need to really sink into my sadness or to really elevate my joy or yes. to come, you know, to dance with my friends. I mean, music is such a powerful energy. So I feel really grateful and, and thrilled to be part of, of that community that gets to make it and listen to it and share it too.
1: That's awesome. Well, you've written a beautiful song, as we mentioned off the top. Without further ado, let's all have a listen to Love Is Not A Game. When that was young. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Wow, that is so beautiful! Congratulations on that song. It's so interesting. You are rocking it out as you're listening to it, and yet it's so deep, and Thank there's you. just so much meaning in those lyrics. And it's really, really amazing job. And I think the song is going to go far. Congratulations! Oh, cool. I'm
3: glad you like it. You know, like I just if anytime people dig a song, I think that's fantastic. And um, that's so, so that's good. really cool that you like it.
1: So good. It really is. It's fantastic. What is the main message that you want to leave people with, Catherine, about self-love and reaching out for help when they're not feeling well? Just very brief, because I have a few more things and I could talk to you for another 20 minutes. But just a main message you want to leave people with on this radio show today.
3: The main message is to, if you can come back to one thing, recognize that whatever you're going through, other people are going through it too. Yes. That's the main message and that you're not alone. And the hardest thing to do is to reach out to make that first step to reach out to a peer group, to a friend, to a colleague, to that one of those numbers on wellness together. But once you do that, you've covered the hardest hurdle and you can find connection and support and to just stay connected to that, that you're not alone.
1: What is bliss for Katherine Harrison?
3: Well, I'm down here on vacation in the warmth right now with my family. That's pretty darn close. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds great.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much, Judy. Well, Bliss
1: was definitely having you here today because it's interesting. You're, you're a musician and you do also this very powerful work, not only as a singer songwriter, but in helping the world be a better place. So amazing stuff. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media?
3: They can reach out uh, Instagram or TikTok or Facebook. The Katherine Harrison is the handle. They can find me at revelious.com, Catherine at They don't have to go far. They'll find us. That's awesome.
1: I want to thank you so much again for being on the show today and have a wonderful vacation. It thank sounds you. fantastic. Enjoy it every is. minute.
3: Thank you so much, Judy. I appreciate it.
1: Each week, we spotlight a fabulous person like Katherine Harrison and Sierra Brown Rodriguez who are living their bliss. So if you are an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, a singer, musician, or someone who is living their bliss, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at FYB at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also the bliss coach. I love helping people get unstuck find clarity and get connected to their passion purpose and calling i'm also on insight timer the number one free meditation app all you have to do is search up judy liebrack and of course you can always follow us at the bliss minute on instagram TikTok, and facebook i would like to thank our wonderful guests sierra brown rodriguez and katherine harrison for being on the show today also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yannitsiello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsors, the Create Fertility Center and Silvering. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer